Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. But in that book, you know, Paul wrote that letter, and Paul wrote all his letters to address a specific situation within different churches, whoever he wrote the letter to. In the case of Philippians, there was a brewing conflict within the church, a division, if you will. And as he mentions in chapter 4, it was Iodia and Syntyche, who were apparently workers with Paul while he was in Philippi, and they were leaders within the church. And at some point, they came into conflict with each other rather than being cooperative. And Paul describes that conflict earlier in the book before he names them as being one of vain conceit and selfish ambition. Now, we don't know what the exact situation was, but Paul's addressing it because apparently the church was starting to take up sides. You know, yay, Heodia, yay, Sintica. You know how we get We Christians can be a very rowdy lot sometimes. But, um, so, he's addressing this. Now, in chapter 4, and that's why he talks about, he pleads for unity for the church all through the letter. And he talks about the joy that comes from having unity within the body of Christ. But here in this section, he's going to address the fear, anxiety, and worry that are generated by a conflict within the church. You know, for Christians, church is our family. I'm truthfully closer to some members of my church than I am to my biological family. And when conflict erupts, we worry. We feel a fear inside that something dreadful is going to happen. People will come into great conflict and they, the unity of the church will break apart. You know, people will leave. We've all heard the stories. You know, I know of one church that split and the people that left that church built a new church right across the street so they could holler names at each other every Sunday morning going in the church. Crazy. And so the church in Philippi, and they've never experienced or heard of any disunity within the body of Christ before. And so there's fear. Fear produces anxiety. And anxiety produces worry. And so Paul's going to tell them how to grab a hold of the peace of God so that they can lay their fears, anxieties, and worries to rest. And you know what? This applies to every situation in life. This prescription from Paul on how to feel God's peace in your life applies to your life across the board. And oftentimes, you know, I talk to Christians all the time who are fearful, anxiety-ridden, worried, because they don't know Paul's prescription or they are not applying it. You see, this is the biggest thing. God gave us this book to teach us all about life, 
to teach us how to handle every situation that comes along. He may not address the situation specifically, but he's laid out principles in the scripture by which we can then address those situations. The problem is, though, many Christians know the book, but they don't apply it. They don't take what they're seeing, what they're reading, and put it into practice. And listen to me. He's also given you the Holy Spirit to help you apply it. He's not telling you to do it on your own. So, before I read the text, let's go ahead and go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together this day. We thank you, Father, for this church and this congregation. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth that it teaches us. I simply ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds this day to your word and that we would put it into practice in our lives and thereby become more like Jesus. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Okay, if you would turn with me to uh, chapter 4 of the book of Philippians. And we're going to be starting in, I'm actually going to start reading at verse 1, but we're going to focus on verses 4 through 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Theodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul gives two areas here. He's talking about how do you get peace? Well, first off, prayer. And I don't mean shooting a flare-up, okay? You know, we all do that as we're going through our day. Help, Lord. Jesus, I need you, okay? We're great at that. I'm talking about disciplined prayer. And that's what Paul always talked about, a disciplined prayer life, where you have a time and a place Every day where you spend time with God simply having a conversation with Him. I don't mean with the prayer list. Nothing wrong with the prayer list. Nothing wrong with praying for others. But where you primarily simply have a conversation with God and allow Him to work on your heart during that time. I have found in my life that some of the greatest times of growth for me were during those times of prayer. 
when I'm on my knees before the Lord and just talking with Him. Telling Him about my day. Telling Him what's going on inside me. What emotional struggles I may be having. What intellectual struggles I may be having. I simply tell Him about them. And I let God work on my heart while that's going on. Prayer is much more than asking God for people's needs, for your needs, much more than asking for stuff. It's about you growing in the Lord. Jesus said, you've heard it said, to love your brother. I tell you to love your enemy and pray for him. Why pray for your enemy? I can be real good at praying for my enemy. Lord, reach down and rip his head off. All right? That's not the point. You don't pray against your enemy. You pray for them. As you genuinely pray for them, even if it's something as simple as, Lord, bless bless Joe, and let it go at that. As you do that consistently in a disciplined way, God will work on your heart so that you no longer view that man or that individual as an enemy. He now will become someone you deeply care about. Therefore, he's no longer an enemy. doesn't matter what he thinks. God's concerned with what's in your heart. Everything in Scripture starts here. Not over there. Not over there. Right here. This is the start point. This is what God is concerned with. You and how you react and how you respond to the world around you. And so, when you engage in that disciplined prayer, God will grow you. And you know there's scientific proof for that? I'm a big reader. And I read just about anything I can get my hands on. And one interesting book was uh, entitled, Why God Won't Go Away, by a couple of atheist neuroscientists. And they discovered when they use PET scans and that on human brains, the disciplined prayer practice will grow your prefrontal cortex. Now that's important because your prefrontal cortex determines how you act in this world, how you react to emotional stimulus. The larger your prefrontal cortex is, the calmer, more patient you are. And what are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That all comes out of the prefrontal cortex. And so God teaches us to pray, and a side effect of prayer is your prefrontal cortex will grow, and you become calmer, more patient, gentler, kinder. The fruit of the Spirit develops. God designed our bodies to work in conjunction with our spirits and with our intellect and our emotions. And this is all like a tapestry, folks. If you distort one, you pull one thread, the picture becomes distorted. That's why Paul says, if you want the peace of God, you pray. You pray. Hey, let me read this again. First off, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Now, 
I want to make a comment about this before we get back into prayer. The word, when Paul is talking here, this is a command. It's not a suggestion. He's not saying rejoice when things go great. When you're happy and having fun, rejoice. No, he's commanding us to rejoice. He says it again, rejoice. Because rejoicing is not an emotion, it's an attitude. And attitudes are not something that we feel, they're something that we take on. So he's commanding us to take on the attitude of rejoicing. The attitude that says, I praise God for everything that happens in my life because I know that nothing comes into my life that is not sent by God or allowed by God for my benefit and His ultimate glory. If you take on that attitude, it doesn't matter what comes into your life. You will have joy that Paul promised and you will be able to rejoice in the Lord because you can look at those trials that come your way and say, well, this is from God. And it's his will, it's his design for me to grow to be more like Jesus. Because when God does that, he's in the process of fulfilling his promise to you to conform you to the image of Christ. That's why James says rejoice or feel joy when you face trials of many kinds. Sorry, the pulpit distracted me. (laughs) Um, So... Rejoice. It's an attitude we need to take on. The attitude of joy. Joy is not an emotion. Do not equate joy and happiness together. They're not the same thing. Happiness is dependent upon the circumstances you find yourself in. Joy is dependent upon your relationship with Jesus Christ and nothing else. So we take on that attitude. We let our gentleness be evident to all. Simple fruit of the Spirit. I mean, there's no other, thing, no other thing about it. But why do we allow that gentleness to be displayed? Because Christ is near. This is Paul's encouragement. Christ is near. Act like Jesus is right here at your shoulder. Remember, every time you sin, you're dragging the Holy Spirit along with you. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. Jesus is right here with us right now. And Paul says, act like it. Act like your Lord is right there with you all the time because he is. You know, I used to think it'd be pretty cool to die in the pulpit during a sermon. Okay, I know some people find that weird, but, you know, I've always looked up to Peter Marshall, who was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, and he died during a sermon. I thought that was really cool. And then I got to thinking about it and said, you know what? What if I said something that wasn't quite theologically correct? And one minute I say that out of my mouth, the next minute I'm standing before Jesus, and he looks at me and says, what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I don't really want to go there. <clears throat> but uh, so <clears throat> he is near, and that's something that we do need to remember. And do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. This, I think, is one of the keys to this passage, with thanksgiving. Are you thankful every time you get on your knees? Are you thankful that you'll be able to talk to God and know that He's listening to you? 
I don't think we Christians really fully grasp the privilege of prayer. The prophet Isaiah says that God does not hear the prayers of the unsaved. Think about that for a minute. How many people out in this world are praying to God because they believe in him, but they don't believe in Jesus, therefore they're not saved, and their prayers go unheard? Not unanswered, unheard. You don't ever have to worry about that. Even if your prayer is from wrong motives, God is listening to you. He always hears the voices of his children, singularly, singularly or together. God is listening to you. When you speak to him, his ear is right here. He hears every utterance of your mind and every utterance of your mouth. And think about the privilege of that. To know that my father is right there listening to me all the time. And whenever I ask for him, he's going to answer my prayers. I do not believe in unanswered prayers. All right? The problem is sometimes we can't tell a no from a yes. I believe God answers yes, wait, and no. But he always answers because he is a father who loves us dearly. And just as my earthly father never ignored me, sometimes I wished he would have, but he never did. So my heavenly father does not ignore me. He hears every utterance that I make and he responds every time. But here's the thing. We need to approach him with thanksgiving. Number one, that he's hearing us. Number two, we know he's going to answer us. And number three, simply because we have the privilege of going into the throne room at any time of the day or night and laying our requests at his feet. I mean, that is so powerful. That, that is just, you know... You, you've heard the songs and that, you know, the battle is won on our knees, etc., etc. There's such great truth in those things, in those statements. You know, God is directing this world. And oftentimes he waits for us to ask him before he acts. Knowing full well when we're going to, mind you. It's not like God's sitting on pins and needles waiting for us. But he's chosen to act in this world through prayer. All around us and within us. You know, I was a new Christian. Oh, just a... I'd only been a Christian a few months. And my grandfather went into the hospital with an irregular heartbeat. And they couldn't get it settled. They were trying medication and therapies and all this stuff. And they came to him uh, one day and they said, We can't get your heart beat back to a regular rhythm. So what we're going to do is tomorrow morning, we're going to stop your heart and restart it. But the problem is you're 80 years old and there's only a 20% chance that your heart will restart. So I go home that night and I pray, you know, Lord, take care of my grandfather, etc., etc. And that night at two o'clock in the morning, I wake up wide awake very rare for me. Normally, it's, it, I, my mind wakes and I, it's a half hour before I pry an eyelid open. But I heard a voice say, pray. And so I did. 
I simply said, Lord, let my grandfather's heart go back to a regular rhythm, and I fell right back sound asleep. Next morning at 7 a.m., my grandfather called me to tell me that at 2 a.m., nurse went into his room to tell him his heart had gone back to a regular rhythm. See, God did that to a new Christian to prove that he was listening and to prove that he was going to answer those prayers. And I'm sure all of you have a similar story, if you think about it. Because our Father in heaven loves us dearly. That's why he does not want us to be anxious. You see, we develop fears. We fear for something. We're afraid about something. And then the anxiety, the emotional part sets in. And we just feel jittery and and just so nervous. And then the worry starts, the thinking part of anxiety. And then we're a wreck. You know, we're just sitting there, just fidgeting, don't know what to do about this stuff. And sometimes anxiety can drive people to desperate measures. I see this at the rescue mission. I've seen men who have done some of the most ridiculous things you could ever think of because they were anxious. And so Paul tells us, be anxious for nothing because the Lord is near. All right, you know, it's a direct line after it. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, turn to God in prayer. And the result is the peace of God that transcends all understanding will be with you. And it will guard your hearts and minds. That's another key phrase here. What will guard your hearts and minds from all the junk out there in this world? And you know there's a lot of it. All you got to do is turn on the morning news, which I don't do anymore, by the way. I can't stand watching uh, people blow things out of proportion and uh, mislead and misdirect. But there's a lot to be anxious about in this world. But Paul says, once you grab a hold of the peace of God, once you follow this prescription, then the peace of God in your heart and your mind will safeguard you. It will guard you from all the other stuff that tries to get in from the world. You don't want to worry about the president, the Congress. You don't want to worry about the direction society is going in. Let the peace of God guard your heart and mind. I'm not saying not be aware of it, but understand that it's God who's in control. I think sometimes we forget that. He's got this world on a path to the ultimate consummation of his kingdom. And he's determined the path that this will take. You know, there was a guy I uh, had heard about who, uh, back in the days of VCRs, uh, his work schedule didn't permit him to watch a lot of the games and stuff that he really enjoyed, and so he would record them. And he would come home, and he'd sit down, and he would watch the end of the game to see who won. And if his team won, he'd get his soda and chips and sit down and watch the whole game because he knew no matter how bad it looked, his team won in the end. Well, guess what? No matter how bad the world looks, God wins in the end. We should never be discouraged. We should be upbeat about it. But the only way we can be upbeat is if we grab a hold of the peace of God 
and let it guard our hearts and minds. Resting in the Lord. That's what this is all about. Resting in God. And, allow, and, and knowing, recognizing that He's the one in charge. And let Him be in charge. You know, oftentimes I think in prayer, I do this, you know, God, I have this really great plan. If you just bless it, everything would be great. No, that's not how it works. So, but Paul goes on here, and this is his final bit of advice in this area, because he's still talking about this anxiety. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have heard or, or, or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the peace and the God of peace will be with you. Well, what Paul is saying here is exercise some mental discipline. Now think about that. Mental discipline is about your thoughts, not your emotions. But your emotions will follow your thinking. Most of us allow our thinking to follow our emotions. And we should reverse it. So Paul says whenever the anxiety starts to well up, shift your thinking. Don't think about that which is making you anxious or fearful. Instead, shift your thinking onto God and the things of God. You see, we know God's in charge. We know He's in control. We know He wins in the end. So what do we really have to worry about? Absolutely nothing. Your life and the lives of those you love are in the hands of God. Nothing is going to happen to them that's not God's plan. It's just that simple, folks. You know, but yet we worry because we have fears and so we get anxious. So Paul says, shift your thinking. Whenever you start thinking about something that brings anxiety or the anxiety produces those thoughts, think about the Lord. Think about the things of the Lord. Look at this list here again. Whatever is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, excellent. Whatever is praiseworthy. Those are all the things of God and only God. So Paul is saying, shift your thinking about the Lord. Think about the things he's done in your life. Think about the things he's going to do in your life. Think about the things he's done in the lives of those around you. And look at the beautiful world he's created for us. Of course, we've not done a great job of taking care of it, but that's not part of this sermon. But shift your thinking onto the things of God. And, and look, you have to train yourself this way. All right, And if you do, when you deliberately start shifting your thinking over a period of time, that's what will happen. When anxiety starts to crop up, your mind will automatically go to the things of God and that anxiety will start to die down. I know because I've experienced it. My father passed away seven years ago. And, you know, that morning my mother called me down, said dad was unresponsive. And 
So I, I walked in there. By the time I got into the, the, got to their house and into the bedroom, Dad had passed away. And so for the next couple of weeks, whenever I thought of my dad, all I saw was him laying on his bed dead. And I finally came to this conclusion, I did not want to remember my dad that way every time I thought of him. So whenever that picture would come into my head, I would replace it with a picture of dad smiling, happy, telling one of his stories. And now, I have to consciously remember my dad's death face because it's not what comes to my mind when I think of dad. It's him laughing, having a good time. I said, telling one of his fish stories. You know, like, I caught a fish this big. <laughs> but, so it works. And then I started applying this passage. If I start getting anxious or worrying, I go to the Bible. Or I think of the things of God. And that anxiety fades away. Because it reminds me, when I start thinking about God... He's in charge. He's got it. Listen to me. Peace isn't something God's going to snap his fingers and give you. You have to practice what Scripture tells us to attain the goal of peace, internal peace. That's what God's talking about. We're not talking about an absence of conflict in your life. We're talking about an absence of conflict within you. If you have that inner peace, you can withstand any conflict around you. And you can act with the fruit of the Spirit. You won't respond with anger or bitterness or unforgiveness. Instead, you'll start acting like Christ would. And isn't that the goal for all of us? To act like Jesus. To be one with Him. Well, wrapping that up, but think about this, folks. If you really want that inner peace, and I know we all do, you have to go about it God's way. You can try all the self-help books you want. You can listen to all Oprah and all the gurus on TV. And what they're giving you is not going to work. Only God's prescription is what truly works. You may find a semblance of peace. You may act like you have peace. But without the Lord, you never have true peace. So. Let's close the sermon with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, once again, we thank you for being able to gather here today. Father, I simply ask that each of us would look into your word, see that truth, that what we've heard today we would put into practice, that we would truly experience your peace, that we could face the world around us with courage and with gentleness. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Now we're going to partake of communion. Communion serves several purposes. 
Number one, of course, it is a remembrance of what Jesus has done and accomplished on our behalf. And that is important that we remember that. We should remember it and think about it every day of our lives. Because it's only through Jesus' work that we can be in a, in a, a relationship with God the Father. Otherwise, everyone on this earth would be hellbound. It's just that simple. But we also need to remember that he's coming back. As Paul says, we do this in remembrance of him until he returns. And I'm going to read the uh, 1 Corinthians 11 here in, in a minute or so. But we need to remember what Jesus has done, and we need to remember his promise that he will return for us and take us to a place that he has already spent 2,000 years preparing. You know, it's Justin Martyr who said that he saw implements that Jesus had, had, had made in his dad's carpenter shop that were still useful and well-maintained 200 years after the fact. Now, was he really looking at stuff? I don't know. But the fact is, Jesus is a craftsman. And I'm looking forward to seeing what he's got built for me. Because if it's only a room in his dad's house, it's the best room ever. And one day, he's coming back for us to take us home with him. Again, when you really spend time reflecting on these things, I don't see how you can be anything other than have your heart burst with joy. So, so Paul writing a letter to the church in Corinth, correcting them in some areas, and one of them was the Lord's Supper. He has this to say, and we're looking at chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for what, where, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So I wish to give you a, a minute to uh, go before the Lord and do some self-examination. And if there's a pattern of sin you need to repent of, ask the Lord's forgiveness of it before you partake of communion.